Welcome to the podcast of Pengrove Community Church. We exist to bring glory to God through lives changed by the gospel of Jesus. Our church is located about 45 minutes north of San Francisco, and if you live in the area, we'd love to have you join us. You can also learn more about us online at pengrovechurch.org. Enjoy the sermon. Well, we're going to be back in the gospel of John this morning. I hope it's been a blessing to you so far. We're a few weeks into this series. It's always been my favorite gospel. And uh, yeah, we're a few weeks in, and it's really been a blessing to me. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. And what we're looking at is a continuation of the testimony of John the Baptist. For John the Apostle, the, the author of the gospel, that's John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, For John the Apostle, the author of the gospel, this section is included to convince his readers to trust in Jesus, to convince his readers to believe in Jesus so that they can have life in his name. He states that as his purpose for writing the gospel at the the very end in John chapter 20, verse 31, to believe in Jesus so that they may have life in his name. And this section that we're in this morning fits perfectly with that purpose. So what we have are divinely inspired words that exist to increase your trust in Jesus, your belief in Jesus, your faith in Jesus. In Jesus. And as a Christian in this world, I always think about the value of that. If only I could trust Jesus more, how much less stress would I feel on a day to day basis if I just trusted Jesus more? How much better would my life be? How much better would my heart be? How much better would everything be if I just trusted Jesus more? If I could rest in that, if I could obey him better? Well, these words exist for that purpose. Last week, we read about this delegation sent by the Jewish leaders to interview John the Baptist. If you remember, they they wanted to know if he was the Christ, or if he was Elijah, or if he was the prophet, and he says no. He tells them, I am not those people, I am not who you think I am, but there is one coming whose sandal I am not even worthy to untie. So, in essence, his message to this delegation from the Jewish leadership was, whatever greatness you think I have, it pales in comparison to the greatness of the one who is coming. The one who is coming. And the very next day, says John, he shows up. And that's what our passage this morning records. Jesus shows up, and John the Baptist testifies that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So let's read the text, and then we'll get right into it. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll read the text for us. Again, it's John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, 
He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated and join me as I pray for us. Father, as we approach your word, I pray that you would help us to understand it, to believe it, to apply it to our lives. Guide us, Lord, into the truth by your spirit, your spirit of truth. I pray that you would guide us into the truth and that you would help us to to feel the significance of these realities, to appreciate the significance of it, and to live in light of it. Lord, I pray for an active powerful work of your spirit this morning in me, in my heart, in my words, in all of us, Lord, in our hearts. Would your spirit work and and do miraculous, powerful things that we know that you can do? Help us, God, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I want to ask you a very important question. How did you come to believe in Jesus? How did you come to believe in Jesus? If you're a Christian, that means that you believe what John the Baptist said. You believe that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that is such a a powerful, packed with meaning statement. It's alluding, of course, to the Old Testament sacrificial system where they had lambs that were offered as sacrifices in order to cover their sins, but they weren't enough, so God had to send his own lamb, the ultimate sacrificial lamb, to cover the sins of all who would believe in him, and not just temporarily, but forever, past, present, and future, all of their sins. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you believe that Jesus is that, If you are trusting that Jesus is that for you, how did you get there? How did you come to believe that? I'm sure that at some point, somebody told you about Jesus. Maybe your parents took you to church when you were a kid. Maybe your life got to a point where you were desperate and you cried out to God. There there could be any number of factors that have led to this point where you are trusting in Jesus as your one and only hope for salvation. But I want to know, I want you to think about what is the ultimate cause? Because all of those things may be factors. Growing up in church or going to church sometimes when you were younger or somebody telling you about Jesus or hearing about something or reading something, all of those things could be factors, but they're not the ultimate cause. So what is the ultimate cause of your belief in Jesus? I'll give you a hint. It's the same thing that caused John the Baptist to believe in Jesus. I was thinking about this week, what was the ultimate cause of my belief in Jesus? And I think most of you know my story, but but if you don't, how I came to believe in Jesus when I was in sixth grade, my parents didn't want to put me and my sister in public schools. I, I didn't grow up in a religious home. We didn't go to church or anything like that. But they decided these, these schools are trash. I want to put my kids in good schools. Uh, and so they, they were looking for private schools for me and my sister. And so they found these Christian schools in the area, and they, they sent us to Christian schools. And I got there, and I didn't know anything about God. I didn't know anything about Jesus. But immediately I started hearing about Jesus and how he can take away a person's guilt and shame. 
how he can pay for all of the bad things that they have ever done. And I, as a kid in sixth grade, knew I had done some bad things. I knew that I was guilty. I knew that I had done things that were wrong. And so when people told me about Jesus, I said, I want that. And I believed that. And it was so strange because I wasn't a gullible kid. It's not like I just believed anything that anybody told me. But for some reason, when these people told me about Jesus, I believed it. When they told me the gospel, the good news of what Jesus could do in my heart, in my life, I believed that. But how? What was the ultimate cause of my belief in Jesus? What was the ultimate cause of your belief in Jesus? The answer is the Holy Spirit. The very same Holy Spirit that we read about in our text today. Think about what this text is saying about John and how he came to believe in Jesus. God had told him beforehand When you see the Spirit descend on somebody, if you read it again, he spells it out for us. God told John the Baptist earlier in his ministry, you're going to go and you're going to preach and you're going to prepare the way of the Lord. You're going to prepare the way of the Messiah. But but he didn't know who the Messiah was. And so God told him, when you see the Spirit descend on somebody, that's the one. That's the Messiah. And then that is exactly what happened. The Spirit descended and remained on Jesus. And as a result, he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah. So you see, the Holy Spirit played an essential role in testifying to John the Baptist. And that's what I want to focus on this morning in the first part of our sermon is the testimony of the Holy Spirit, how he testifies to people about Jesus And then we'll look at the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which I think corresponds to his role in our lives today. Again, in the text, John says there is one coming who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's Jesus. Jesus doesn't just baptize with water. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit of God. And and not just when he was on earth back in the first century in, in the Middle East, Even today, when people come to Jesus, Jesus baptizes them with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? How does that affect our lives today? Well, let's begin with some some basic facts about the Holy Spirit. What does the Bible teach about the Holy Spirit and who he is and, and what he does? Sometimes people think that the Holy Spirit is some some wild, chaotic, weird thing that happens in Pentecostal churches. Anybody ever thought that before? Anybody ever ever, ever seen that? So when, when you hear the words Holy Spirit, you might think of some crazy, out-of-his-mind preacher like shoving people over. Or you think of just wild scenes where people are speaking in tongues and it's, and it's strange and it's kind of creepy. But that is not what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit. And I want to say clearly, most of that stuff is just garbage. Most of it is just garbage. And and I also want to say clearly, I'm not saying that all Pentecostal churches are bad. I'm not saying that all charismatic churches are bad. I'm not saying that nobody ever speaks in tongues. I'm not saying that. But still, a lot of that crazy stuff that you see or hear about is just people pretending. 
or, or people who are deceived and confused and they are not actually experiencing the Holy Spirit. Think about Benny Hinn, for example. Benny Hinn is a false teacher who teaches false things about God and performs false miracles and think about all the preachers like him. That's what people think of when they think of the Holy Spirit is all that wild, dramatic stuff that is done by false teachers and it's not real. That's not really what the Holy Spirit is like. So let's get some clarity. Let's get some truth. What is the Holy Spirit actually like? Well, we need to start with some some basics. First, the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is a person. He is a person, meaning that he thinks, he believes, he loves, he has a will, a, a mind. He is a person like other people. He is not some mystical force. The Holy Spirit is not an idea or a feeling. He is a personal being like you and me. The big difference is that the Holy Spirit is divine. We are human people, but the Holy Spirit is a divine person. That's what the Bible teaches. He is a member of the Trinity, meaning that God is fully and completely God, and Jesus is fully and completely God, and the Holy Spirit is fully and completely God. He has the the same character, the same goals, the same divine nature as the other members of the Trinity. We also know that the Holy Spirit is is active. He is at work in people's lives, in people's hearts, in in churches. But we also need to have a a clear understanding of the work that the Holy Spirit does. And I, I think we see the primary work of the Holy Spirit in our text today. The Bible says a lot of things about the Spirit. And according to the Bible, he does a whole bunch of different things. But I think the biggest, most important thing he does, we can see in verse 33. Looking again at verse 33. He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So remember what I was saying earlier. God had told John beforehand the Messiah is going to be the one that that the Spirit descends on. And then Jesus comes along to be baptized by John the Baptist. And, and when John the Baptist baptizes him, the Spirit descends upon him, and that's when John knows this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. This is he who comes after me but ranks before me because he was before me, meaning he is preexistent. He is eternal. He existed before John the Baptist existed. He existed before Moses. He existed before Abraham. He existed before the world created. This is the incarnate Son of God. John came to believe that because the Holy Spirit testified to him that that is who Jesus was. So that's what the Holy Spirit does. He helps people believe in Jesus. He points them to Jesus. He says, that's the one that you need to believe in. And in fact, Jesus tells us this more explicitly later in the Gospel of John. John chapter 15, verse 26 says, When the Helper comes, capital H, Helper, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, and that illuminates another role of the Holy Spirit for us. He's a Helper. When the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, 
the spirit of truth. So now we're learning all kinds of things about the Holy Spirit, right? He's a helper. He is sent by Jesus from the Father. He's the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. And then notice this last line. He will bear witness about me. That's what he does. He bears witness about Jesus. I remember reading the the autobiography of C.S. Lewis. It's called Surprised by Joy, and it's a truly great book, like pretty much all of his books. In that book, he describes his conversion to Christianity. It's an autobiography, and he talks about his early life as a non-Christian and growing up and getting into Greek and Latin and Norse mythology. And it's a, it's a really fascinating and wonderful book. And he talks about um, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings. That was a friend of C.S. Lewis. They, they both worked at Oxford. And Lewis was not a Christian, but, but Tolkien was. And so for years, he told C.S. Lewis about Jesus, and they talked about Christianity. And eventually, God, you know, worked and worked and worked in his heart, and eventually he became a Christian. And then in that book, he describes the, the day that he became a Christian. And notice how he describes it. This quote is, um, it's on your notes if you want to follow along. He says, I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. Emotional is perhaps the last word we can apply to some of the most important events. It was more like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. Isn't that interesting? It just happened. Something happened inside of him. It wasn't something that that he was thinking through at the time or, or feeling emotional about. And I think that highlights just how mysterious the Holy Spirit can be and just how other the Holy Spirit is when he is at work in us. This wasn't something that C.S. Lewis did He didn't cause himself to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There was something outside of him that did that, namely the Holy Spirit. And I I want to say again that this does not rule out other causes. So before you became a Christian, before you came to believe in Jesus, you you may have been influenced by other things, A, a friend, a family member, a movie you watched, a a sermon that you heard, something you heard on the radio, a billboard that you saw. But the deciding factor, the primary cause for your belief in Jesus was and is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And nobody, nobody can genuinely trust in Jesus with saving faith if the Holy Spirit does not give them that saving faith. That's what the Bible teaches. And the thing is, we are so inclined to pay more attention to all of the tangible things, all of the the, the physical things, right? I mean, what I'm saying is, when we think about our journey to faith, 
when we think about why we believe in Jesus, the things that are going to stick out to us are going to be the things like the friends, the family members, the, the thing that we read, or that one night where we were really, really desperate and we cried out to God. All of that stuff is going to stick out in our minds because it's tangible. It's, it's physical. It's, it's touchable, right? But that, I think, distracts from the real cause, which is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit needs to get the credit that he deserves. And so I want you to, to think carefully, to think hard, and to realize it, it wasn't my mom who led me to Jesus. It wasn't, it wasn't that church or that pastor. It was the Holy Spirit. He's the one who did it. And therefore, he's the one who gets the credit. He's the one who gets the glory. He testified to Jesus in your heart, and you came to believe because of that. And you know what? He's going to keep testifying. For the rest of your life, the Holy Spirit will be in you testifying to Jesus. How do you think a person makes it to the end still believing in Jesus? So many things in our lives come along to distract us from Jesus to cause us to doubt him, to to pull us away from Jesus? How do you think a person is going to make it into the end of their lives still trusting in Jesus, still following in Jesus? The answer is that the Holy Spirit is going to continue to testify and bear witness about Jesus to that person. Romans 8 chapter 9 says this. It says, "You You, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. What this is saying is that if you belong to God, if you belong to Jesus, then the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, dwells in you you. Think about, think about what that means about our closeness with God. You can't get any closer than that, right? A dwelling in you. In our passage, it uses that phrase, baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus baptizes people with the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? We're talking about the kind of baptism where you go completely underwater, That was the sort of baptism that they would have been practicing, John the Baptist and Jesus and later Jesus' disciples, the kind where you go completely underwater. It's not just a sprinkling of water. It's not just a pour over the head. It is a complete immersion in water. And so now if you follow the analogy, Jesus doesn't baptize people in water. He baptizes people in the Spirit of God. So if you come to Jesus... He will baptize you in the Spirit of God or immerse you in God. Or or you will be covered by God. You will be surrounded by God. Or as Romans 8 says, you will be indwelled by God. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? But but it's not just a picture. It's not just a metaphor or an idea. As you look at the rest of the scriptures, you can see that this has practical implications for our lives. I want to run through a number of these scriptures that speak about the Holy Spirit and what he does in our lives. 
starting with John 14, 26. You can see these on your notes as well. John 14, 26 tells us that the Holy Spirit is our helper. So if you need help from God, he is right there with you at all times ready to help. God, because his spirit dwells in you, God is never distant. He's never too far away to hear you. He's never too late in coming to help you. He is literally dwelling inside of you as close as he could possibly be at all times. And he's there to help you. It also says in that verse that he teaches us and brings to our remembrance the words of Jesus. So your ability to recall the words of Jesus, your ability as a Christian to grow in wisdom and knowledge, that ability is the result of the Holy Spirit working in you. Now Romans 8.26 says the Spirit helps us in our weakness and he helps us pray. He helps us pray. He intercedes on our behalf with the Father. So, so when you don't know what to pray for, when you feel so broken and so confused that you don't even know what to say to God, I think everybody experiences that moment, those kinds of moments at some point in life where, where life has just devastated you where you are so wrecked, where you are so beaten down and broken that you don't even know what to say to God. It's in those moments when the Holy Spirit steps in and says what you can't say, puts words to, to what you can't put words to. Acts 1.8 also tells us that the Holy Spirit gives us the power to tell other people about Jesus. Have you ever felt like you want to tell other people about Jesus, whether it's a coworker or a friend or, or a family member, and you, and you think, man, I, I really, I know I should be sharing the gospel with people. I should be telling people about Jesus. I should be bold with my faith, but, but I don't want to be weird. I don't want people to think I'm some religious weirdo. And I don't know what to say. And if they have questions, I'm not sure I would know how to answer those questions. And sometimes people get really hostile about it. And I don't think I could handle the hostility from them. If you've ever felt like that, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says that the Holy Spirit gives us power to tell other people about Jesus. Jesus talks about this, how the Spirit gives us words in situations where we're worried about what we're going to say. The Holy Spirit can give us the words to say when we just don't know what to say. And so if you are on the fence when it comes to inviting somebody to the Christmas service next week or just telling somebody about Jesus, if you're on the fence and you're not sure that you can do it, this says you can do it. The Holy Spirit will be there with you and helping you and giving you power to do it. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says this about the Holy Spirit. It says, The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from compulsive behaviors, freedom from 
from from patterns and 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 being stuck and and feeling powerless to to do what we know we ought to do freedom from guilt and shame the holy spirit is an agent of freedom the holy spirit is also an agent of hope romans 15:13 May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I know that in the darkest times of life, sometimes you just need a little bit of hope. You know the circumstances aren't going to change in a moment. You know the pain and difficulty is not going to disappear just like that. But if you can just have some hope that someday it's going to be okay. Well, the Holy Spirit is what gives Christians hope. Anybody remember the 2008 presidential campaign? I'm sure you all remember it to, to some extent. Barack Obama versus John McCain. I remember that the Obama campaign was supposedly all about hope. There was this, this famous poster. And it was like, it was blue and red. And he's like, Obama's in there in a suit. And he's like looking up and off to the side. And I don't really know how to describe the style of it. But if you saw it, you would remember it and be like, oh yeah. I remember seeing that everywhere. And, and below this, this image of Barack Obama were big, giant capital letters that said H-O-P-E, hope. And, and I feel like that resonated with people. After all, he won in a landslide and people were filled with hope. Like if we get this guy elected, things are really going to, to change. But you know what? It was a false hope. Whatever people hoped for with, with Obama either didn't happen or ultimately it was not satisfying. No president can satisfy the longing of our souls and give us the hope that we need. What the Bible says is that is what God's Holy Spirit is for. That's not what politicians are for. When you need hope, do not go looking for politicians to fulfill your hope. That's what God's spirit is for. Only God's spirit can give you the hope that you need, the love that you long for, the peace that you seek, the joy that you want. Romans chapter 5 says that God's spirit pours out the love of the Father into our hearts. Galatians, Galatians 5.23 says that the fruit of the spirit is love, joy. I want you to listen to this list. Listen to these things that it's saying. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Sometimes this, the Bible uses this imagery where people are like trees that, that bear certain kind of fruit. So if you are a tree... What kind of fruit would you be bearing? Would you bear the fruit of encouragement? Would you bear the fruit of peace? Or would you bear the fruit of drama and gossip? Would you bear the fruit of discouragement and frustration? Would you bear the fruit of anger? What sort of fruit does your life produce? What sort of things grow out of your heart, out of who you are? 
Well, if the Spirit of God lives in you, then Galatians chapter 5 is describing the kind of fruit that you will bear. And some people will hear that and they'll think, man, my life is not full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. Therefore, I must not have the Spirit of God in me. And some people will think that rightly. Some people need to read that and think, oh my gosh, that is not me. That is not my life. It looks nothing like that. And they'll rightly understand, I don't have the Holy Spirit in me. I don't belong to Jesus. And hopefully, coming to understand that, they will then turn to Jesus and beg for his mercy and his forgiveness and beg for him to save them. And he will. And yet, there's a whole other group of people who are genuine Christians who will read that and think, man, my life doesn't look like that. Those things are not happening. They're not coming out of me. And and now I don't know if I'm really a Christian, when in reality, they actually are a Christian. So I'll say, for if that's you, for people like that, they need to know that it's not perfect. The Holy Spirit indwelling in Christians, producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on, it's not perfect. It doesn't happen 100% of the time completely, nothing but love, joy, peace, and patience, and so on. It's, it's something that happens imperfectly. It's something that grows and builds over time and over long periods of time. So, so what you'll see, the reality is, is that there, when, when somebody's not a Christian— and they don't really have any of that stuff in their lives. They become a Christian, and slowly it starts to grow and build over months and years and decades to where they increasingly become the kind of person who is marked by love. And of course they mess up, and they, they, they backslide, and they sin, and they have to repent, and they, you know, it's, it's a process, but increasingly, they become the kind of person who is marked by love. Increasingly, over time, over many years of repentance and growth and, and striving, they become the kind of person who is marked by joy. And, the, and they learn to be a person of peace and patience and kindness and goodness. And, and they start to exhibit the characteristic of faithfulness. They become gentle and their lives over time, become marked by self-control. Is that the kind of person that you want to be? Aren't those the things that we all want to have? The good news is that by grace, through faith in Jesus, he will baptize us in the Holy Spirit, and we can have those things. Not necessarily as much as we want, as fast as we want, but we can have them if we will follow Jesus and obey his commandments and continue to trust in him for the grace that we need. And, and what this reminds us is that ultimately it all comes back to Jesus. He is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that can give us those things, but Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So ultimately it all goes back to Jesus. And that's the purpose of this passage that was the whole purpose of the preaching of John the Baptist. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit, to point to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Jesus, as we think about you, I pray that we would appreciate you and honor you and love you. 
Holy Spirit, we pray that you would truly work in our hearts right now, this morning, today, that you would work in us to, to, to cause us to see and, and trust in Jesus and to love Jesus, to empower us to tell other people about Jesus, to fill us with hope, to, to transform us, to be more like Jesus, to produce your fruit in our lives. We know, God, that on our own, we don't produce very good fruit. That apart from you, we produce a lot of bad fruit. But with you, by your power, we can, we can have new hearts, new minds in Christ, and we can bear good fruit. So we pray that by your spirit, we could bear good fruit and, and trust you more. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.